I'm Stefan Sittig, and welcome to American Theatre Artists Online, where we talk with leading contemporary figures in American theatre. If you've been enjoying the American Theatre Artists Online podcast, I urge you to consider donating to help the artists who produce the theatre that we all love so much. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, many performers, designers, directors, choreographers, stage crew, and theatre administration staff are either without a job or in peril of losing their jobs. The Actors Fund provides assistance to artists to cover basic living expenses, such as food, essential medications, utilities, and more. If you love and enjoy theater, please consider donating to the Actors Fund today. Just go to actorsfund.org and press donate. My guest today is Blair Russell, a freelance producer, developer, supporter, and lover of theater whose experience ranges from fringe festivals to Broadway shows. His most recent projects include the 12-time Tony-nominated Slave Play by Jeremy O'Harris and the critically acclaimed immersive off-Broadway production of Sweeney Todd. At Show Shepherd, he helps writers and producers navigate the development of new work and he produces live immersive audio dramas as director of operations for Resounding. He currently serves on the board of New York Theater Barn and the New Harmony Project, and he is a graduate of Virginia Commonwealth University with a BFA in technical theater and stage management. Hi, Blair. Hello. How are you? I'm doing pretty good today. How about you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for joining us today on American Theatre Artists Online. Uh, we are very happy to talk to a producer. That's me. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. And we don't, I guess that's me. <laughs> that is you. That's why you're on here. Uh, we don't, you know, we, we've talked to all sorts of different people in the theatre and uh, I did speak to a uh, producer, Charlotte Cohn, earlier on, who's an off-Broadway producer. But um, I really wanted to talk to you because of your experience producing, developing, supporting, and overall your love of theater um, that ranges from fringe to Broadway and everything in between. So I thought it would be really great for people. A lot of my listeners want to know more about uh, you know, behind the scenes in theater and how theater gets done and gets, gets on the stage so that they can enjoy it. So we're glad you're here. Well, I'm really happy to be here. Let's do it. <laughs> all right. So how did you um, get um, started in all of this? Did you, were you always starting um, from a, a I, I don't imagine that most kids or young people start thinking they're going to produce theater. I mean, you would think that. And, <laughs> it, like, as a, as a young kid, no, I didn't say, oh, I want to be a producer. But if I look back now, that's pretty much what I wanted to be. I just didn't know the word for it. Ah. Uh, when I was when I was really young, you know, I grew up in in Northern Virginia, and not a very theatrical place. No one really supported theater, did theater. There was a few community theaters, but I first wanted to be a director of movies. I really just liked movies and television, and I was like, oh, I could I could really get into that. But that was even less accessible than theater. Mm -hmm. So I thought, well, let me try theater in school, and middle school, and high school, and that's kind of how I I got started. My, my first time in a show. 
I walked near the the black box near the drama classroom, and one of the the older you know drama students just pulled me in and was like, "You're auditioning," and I was like, "Okay." And part of me was terrified, but the other part was like, "Yeah, you know, I was, I wanted to do this anyway." So, <laughs> so you had a so your first major experience was as a performer. Um, my first major experience, I don't know if I would call high school major, but yes, my first major experience was as a performer, as you know, almost everyone in the theaters is, because we don't know what else there is to do until okay. you have years and years of, of experience and learning from others. But yeah, I started out acting. Um, my, I was in The Imaginary Invalid at oh. Moliere. Nice. Yeah. And so you got pulled on stage to do that or just to audition. And I assume you, you obviously auditioned and got the part apart. And then from there, so after was, was that when the bug bit you and you wanted to go do more in college or how did you, how did you transition from that? Yeah, absolutely. So that was my freshman year of high school and I enjoyed the people, the environment, uh, being in the theater, backstage, on stage. I just loved everything about what we were doing. So it really pretty much became my life from there on. And I would audition for all the shows and do plays and do musicals. But after the first two, three shows, I wanted to start doing the other parts. So I wanted to be the stage manager and I wanted to be the assistant director and I wanted to design lights and design set. I say I wanted to. I also think nobody else wanted to. So it kind of was <laughs> by, by default that I became that person. Yeah. Uh, and so when I was when I was kind of planning to go to college, I knew I wanted to study theater, but I also knew I did not want to be a performer. So I looked around and... You know, I saw VCU in Richmond, Virginia, and they had a stage management program. Mm. And I had been a stage manager in high school, apparently, but I really didn't know anything about it. But when I was reading about the program, I was like, oh, yeah, this is everything that I want to do. So I applied with almost zero experience, and they let me in for some reason. And that's <laughs> that's how I ended up being a, a, starting out as a stage manager. Wow, that's amazing. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's really interesting. A lot of young people don't know, and I'm always trying to impart this to them about how how many opportunities there are on the other side, right, of the creative table, uh, especially in terms of technical aspects of theater and stage management and what a great career it can be. And so many young kids are so attracted first to, to being on stage, right? But that's great that at a very young age, you you knew that about yourself, that it was more, you didn't want to be an actor, you wanted to be something else. And I think part of it was I didn't want to be an actor because I knew I was not good. So I knew oh. I would have to do something else. <laughs> or, or you were you were always interested in the in the bigger things, you know, something uh, broader. I should say, not bigger. But you know, like I had a I had a, a theater teacher in in undergrad who said to me one day, you know, you're not a you're not an actor. You're really a director. And I right. and I got so upset at her because <laughs> <laughs> right. I wanted to be an actor, right? And and then so to to be able to to have to have someone see in you that was there someone that saw something in you and. Or was it all just you kind of figuring it out for yourself? Did someone mentor you or did you just get go in by yourself? I mean, to be honest, no one mentored me specifically in being a performer or being a stage manager. But when I was working in community theater, there were people who just really took me kind of under their wing and and allowed me to observe or, and, and be a part of whatever I wanted to be a part of. And I learned some really quick lessons about the theater, like the time I was pulled into a show the week before it was 
opening and okay. I'm like working with the choreographers and the director and the music director all at the same time. And it was, it was things like that, that sort of um, spiked my interest in how all of this happens. And so, you know, I, I, again, I didn't come from a place where theater was a really big thing. And my teacher in high school was somebody who just loved classics, like wasn't really big on <laughs> teaching us about the business of theater mm-hmm. or any of that. So it was almost through those actions and through those moments that I learned what I wanted to do. So it was like reverse mentorship. Is that a thing? <laughs> no, no, I totally, I totally hear what you're saying. You know, and I, I find that a lot of the experiences of a lot of uh, people that I interview, especially people who are um, BIPOC or, you know, who are not white, perhaps, who are getting involved in the theater, it's amazing how many of them say to me, I don't really, didn't really have a mentor. I, I didn't have anyone really pushing me. Um, and that always breaks my heart to some extent, because I feel like there may be a need for more uh, mentorship and more, um, you know, to get people other than, you know, white people involved in theater at an early age. There seems to be, you have to kind of forge your own way. I was speaking to Sharice Mojani, who's an amazing lighting designer. And she kind of, I said, who mentored you? She kind of was like, no one. No one, yeah. Yeah, that's that's heartbreaking to me. So I think it's it's something we can look at to try to make uh, theater more inclusive as we move forward. Well, in fact, this year, probably two months ago, I got on a call with Warren Adams, who's a Broadway director, choreographer, and producer. Uh, He was a choreographer on Motown. Mm -hmm. And we're talking, and this call goes on for like two, two and a half hours, and I'm just amazed. And then at the end of it, I realize I'm just in tears because I've actually never talked to a black man about theater in that capacity, like somebody who was had more experience than me and could give me advice. It had never happened to me before. Mm. And it was just shocking, you know? And I, I don't know. I was just like, just so amazed by that moment and the realization and you're right. It really does need to change. It it shouldn't be that way. No. And I think that, you know, one of the things we can do is, is theater people and, and the people who are working now in the business. And I'm also an educator to try to get, um, representation in our faculty, in our groups for kids so that um, from every level, right? From middle school to high school to college, university, or anywhere, or just in community theaters, anywhere, the more uh, people of color they are, just different, I don't just, you know, I mean, just a more variety of, of, of voices, uh, the more that, this, that the young people will have someone they can sort of look up to. You know, it's interesting. Right. But um, so you went through all this on your own and you got through um, your stage management program uh, at VCU and then you're out there. Did you did you go head towards stage management or were you or did, did you shift at that point more to producing or both? How did it, how did you out of college? What did you uh, head towards? Yeah, I was <laughs> I liked college. I really did. And I loved being at Richmond and being at VCU. But there's something about me. People who are into astrology would say it's because I'm a Capricorn. Oh, I'm a Virgo. Like, I really just wanted to be working. <laughs> yes. I really, I, I just wanted to be working. Earth I signs. wanted to be out there, yes. you know? Earth. I wanted to, yes. be, to be starting my career. So mm-hmm. I actually ended up finishing my degree in three years. Ah. And my last semester, I spent in Las Vegas doing uh, a sort of internship for Cirque du Soleil. Oh, wow. As a stage That's a great experience. And it, not only was it a great experience, it sort of thrusted me into the world of what it would be like to actually be a working stage manager. Mm. And in Las Vegas, you're doing two shows a night, yeah. you know, 90 minutes each, and it's a job. Like mm-hmm. We show up, you clock in, you clock out, you do the same thing every day. It was the longest run of shows I'd ever done. Before that, it was a couple of weekends or, mm-hmm. you know, maybe 
two or three weeks if it was community theater. But this was the first time I went and did, I think we did 10 shows a week. So that that taught me a lot about being a stage manager because that was my last semester. I sort of came back and had to do all my final exams. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm ready to go. So I, I did think I was going to be a professional stage manager, but I wasn't ready to go to New York. I think part of me was like, I don't want to struggle just yet. Like I don't want that. I want to enjoy myself. So I did a few uh, temporary gigs in Santa at the Santa Fe Opera, mm-hmm. Opera Santa Barbara, mm-hmm. uh, some small jobs here and there. This was all sort of after I graduated, and then I ended up getting a job at Goodspeed Musicals in East Haddam, Connecticut, and oh. that's uh, two-time Tony-winning regional theater. Yes. You know, the, the birthplace of Annie and Shenandoah and Man of La Mancha. So that was kind of exciting for me because I had been out of theater, obviously working for Cirque du Soleil and and working uh, for different opera companies. And I was like, oh, I want to get back into theater. I missed the rehearsal process. Mm -hmm. You know, opera and, and, well, Cirque du Soleil, there was no rehearsal. It was just practice, you know, it's all different. It's a different animal, yeah. Opera, it's like you have rehearsal, but it's, it's, (laughs) it's more about the big staging and the, the huge chorus and all the supernumeraries. It's not about you know, the acting process, the table work, the let's try this, okay, let's try it again, okay, let's try it a third time, but it's going to be different. It's it's more, you know, the director shows up and they have everything planned out because there's a huge vision involved. So getting back into theater was fun, and especially at Goodspeed, I, I was able to do new shows. Yes, I was going to say, musicals. they're known, that theater, Goodspeed's known for um, the development of a lot of new shows, right? So exactly. That, yeah. So what were some of your best experiences? How long were you at Goodspeed? I was at Goodspeed for two and a half years. I think it's very it's very fuzzy now. <laughs> uh, I started as a production assistant on a production of Good News. And uh-huh. what Goodspeed was known for, and still does occasionally, was to do revisals, which is to take an old musical and like mm-hmm. change the book and reorder the songs and get all of the you know approval from the estate. Now, and wait, remind so- me. Good News was a musical film. June Allison? I... I and, you and, got me. And, 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 and there are two versions. Uh, there's like the pre-code version and the post-code it's a version. Col- college. It's, it's a college musical, right? Yes, set in the yes. Co- yes. It's so set on the June college Allison campus. And, and Peter Lawford, yes, in the uh, yes. one of the MGM, I want to say MGM versions, but we may be wrong. But anyway, I, I, I vaguely know of it. Yes, okay. Yes. And so you guys so, took it and, review, and re- revised it. We took it and revised nice. it. And, you know, it was so fun to go through that process. But then we had to do the run. Oh. And... And I was like, oh, doing the same show over and over again isn't that fun. And also, I was living in rural Connecticut. I love uh, everyone at Good Speed. I love that community of people. But the town is very small and not that exciting when you're 22. Um, no, not, not, <laughs> so when you, not the kind of experience that you wanted to live live in. No, I mean, yeah. I could walk from the theater mm-hmm. and that was it. There was an ice cream shop. And you occasionally get to New York, but not really because as a stage manager, you work nights and weekends yeah. so and, when, and that's when. it. Yeah. So I was, as I did that, I realized maybe stage management isn't necessarily the final stop. So at good speed, you know? the good speed is where, when you had the realization that you, you maybe wanted to do something else. Yes, I had the realization, and then I had to do three more shows. So after that, <laughs> I did a show in the second 
uh, space called LMNOP, which was based on a book, like the letters LMNOP. Yeah. It's actually a really good book. And I love the show as well, licensed by Samuel French. Um, okay. And that was fun to work on something that was completely new uh-huh. with the, like a young cast and for something it to be contemporary, which I was really, really getting into at the time. Uh, this sort of contemporary musicals based on new stories. And I did that show and then I was like, oh, it's the new work that really drives me and those runs were shorter as well so mm-hmm. i was i was attracted to that and then i did two more shows in that theater and luckily at good speed at that time there was enough work they were doing a lot of new shows that donalyn hilton and bob allwine who were the associate producer and line producer at the time they needed an assistant and they had never had an assistant before in their office mm-hmm. and i applied and I don't know if it was because I was the best candidate or because I was just there already <laughs> and very convenient. Uh-huh. But they were like, sure, you could do this job. Uh-huh. And I was like, great. And I had no idea. I'd never been anyone's assistant before as far as like in an office. And I'd never done any producing other than, well, I would come to find out that I had done producing. I just didn't know it. But, uh, mm-hmm. I, but I took the job and ended up working for them and being able to do amazing work with them. So that was the first time. I really was like, oh, maybe it's producing. Right. Well, did, didn't a lot of the, some of the best producers on Broadway from Hal, you know, Hal Prince was a producer at one point, right? Um, uh, didn't they kind of learn that way by being sort of assistants to other big producers? I think that's kind of how you have to learn, right? The ropes. Yeah, there, there's really, there's only two ways. One is to just throw yourself in the deep end and do the small project, the fringe mm-hmm. show, the off-off Broadway. And the other is to find somebody who will take you under their wing and just teach you. And, and a lot of the teaching is like, I'm yelling at you from the other side of the wall to do this thing, but you mm-hmm. know it's important and you learn why it's important. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Donalyn and Bob, uh, were just super helpful. They had completely different styles. They were working on different types of projects. So I was learning how to produce at a regional and what mm-hmm. that took. And then I was also learning about producing a new show or doing a workshop in New York City or trying to plan a tour, you know, something, working with projects that are being enhanced by commercial producers. Yeah. And and that right. was where I really, really started to understand this is what I want to do. Because I would see producers come up from New York, whether it was to watch a show to see if they wanted to produce it mm-hmm. or they've, they've um, you know, it's their project that they're putting on at the second space and just really observing how we do this thing called commercial, commercial theater. Wow. Well, you obviously were in the right place at the right time, but also you, um, there was a recognition that you could get it done. Perhaps your experience as a stage manager came in handy for you to jump right into the, the assistant producing role and to learn that way. So for those listening in, because at this point we've talked a lot about, you know, a little bit about your background and we haven't finished get, you know, how you got to, to where you are now. But while we're stopped here for a second, I wanted to ask you what exactly, I think a lot of people are not sure, but what exactly does a producer do? So tell us a bit about what you do when you're a producer and what is your role in getting productions to the stage? I think people sort of think they know. Some people think it's all about money. They don't get um, the actual hard job of a producer. Can you, can you give a quick rundown of what that might be? The quick rundown is you just make calls and answer emails. But the, <laughs> it's <just> time consuming. <laughs> but the, the, the longer version is there, there are many different people who can be called producers. And how you produce is really dependent on your skill. Mm-hmm. I call myself someone who sits in the sort of left brain, right brain producer, where I do 
consider myself a creative producer in that I advise artists on developing their projects, but I also understand the business side of it, the money, and we'll, we'll talk about why in a little bit. But um, a producer's job is to make a show happen. And that means everything from hiring the first person, maybe you're commissioning a show and you're actually hiring the writers to make it, or you already have found a show that you really like and you want to produce, so you hire them, to bringing on a director, putting the creative teams together, uh, figuring out where what the venue is going to be, figuring out the budget, figuring out how long you're going to run, how many performances. I mean, every single choice on a show, when you go see a show, from walking into the theater, a producer chose that theater. Mm-hmm. Uh, to looking at the artwork on the program, a producer said that. And then every person in that program was hired by the producer. Sure. And so a project starts from this little gem of an idea, you know, a gleam in someone's eye. And it's a producer's job to like reach into their eye, <laughs> pull it out and make it a real thing. Mm-hmm. So you just, you know, I call myself a, a supporter and lover of theater and it's true it's it's you have to want to support this thing that we do and you do that by filling in all the gaps mm. um wherever there is need a producer either does it or they know someone who does it or they hire someone to do it right they get it done right and i know that that didn't probably didn't explain anything to anybody no know i actually think do, that was a really, really good no i think it's a really good explanation because a lot of people don't get at all what they do some people think it's all about oh it's someone just gave a lot of money so they became a producer i'm like well that's one aspect depending on who it is but what i think about producers is what you just described which is the person who gets all the hard work done it's the non-artistic side of it i mean there's an artistic side to it in that you have to choose things you have like you said the program the there's you know you choose the artistic team but you're not involved in the daily rehearsals um you're not the director you're not the choreographer those people are people that you've hired with a group hired to 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 produce and create all that creativity in the room but you're you're the one that's making sure that everything's flowing and happening because without the producer there's nothing (laughs) <laughs> a producer has to be really practical. Yeah. And a producer's job is to make space for people to dream and create and design and discover and fail and succeed. Mm-hmm. And and you put all the support in place for that to happen. And that's and why right. it's, it's good that you're a, a earth sign, a Capricorn. <laughs> exactly. Practical, practical. I'm a Virgo, so it says, you know, practical signs, um, we get things done. And that's what you need. You need people that can get things done as a producer. You don't want a producer who's super artistic and creative but doesn't know how to pick up a phone and, and make a call or, or get someone where they need to be. Right. That's, you know, that is really somebody who I would consider more of a director or designer. Correct. Very rarely you could find somebody like that who could put the perfect team around them if they're just the idea person, mm-hmm. but you really need to have some skills. And like you said, there's normally large sums of money involved, but sure. it's not necessarily your money if you're a producer. Some people it is, some people it isn't, and it just kind of depends on how you roll, how much money you have, right. <laughs> and what you like doing. Some people love raising money, and they know a lot of people, and they sure. can raise it from them. Some people don't at all, and they don't have to. Right, and raising money is different than having your own money to put in. So you, yes. some people are very good at raising the money, and they don't have to have the money themselves, and that's fine too. Never put your own money in a show. Never put your own money in yeah, a show. Okay, <laughs> but sorry, I didn't need to go off into the the producer's tangent there, the musical, the producer. Okay, so um, you were talking about um, working with these two wonderful uh, producers at at good speed, right? So then, what happened? So. I would say one of the funny things about my pathway in 
the theater industry is that nothing ever happened because I wanted it to or because I expected it to. It was mm. always sort of, I always sort of backed into it. Sure. Um, and so I'm at, I'm at Goodspeed. I had done two seasons there, some as a stage manager and as a producer. I got to do great things like produce the Festival of New Musicals. It's uh, this festival that happens in January. I think it's the first or second weekend of January. And we produce three new shows, do stage readings of them with students from um, the Hart School in Hartford. Mm -hmm. And they come down and they live on the Goodspeed campus. And we bring three teams, three writing teams with their directors and their musical Mm -hmm. directors. And we do these stage readings. Uh, And what was great about that job is that they sort of let me decide what the shows were going to be with a lot of parameters like there's 40 students and we had to have roles for all of them sure. but that I got to read a show and say how can we make is can this happen mm. who's on the team how do we get them up here um, doing some of the company management work like okay everyone needs to be housed where are the students going to live what's the transportation situation mm-hmm. what's the schedule of shows and then we would also do these sort of um, educational sessions for our patrons who are into new musicals so I was booking guests to come and speak uh, about different topics in musical theater and we were organizing like cabarets and so doing all of that putting all of that together I was like oh I can do this like I can actually do something myself and yeah okay it's not a full show with the set designer and lighting designer but there was so much involved and it was so fun and there were so many moving pieces it made me feel really confident in my abilities Hmm. but again I mentioned this I was still 22 23 living in sort of rural Connecticut and I I felt like I had to do something else before I take the leap of saying oh I'm going to move to New York and try to be a producer or uh, you know there was no real direct path from where I was to what the next step was Mm. and so I put in my notice at Goodspeed I think I was sort of November and I was like I think I'm going to at the end of our festival, at the end of this writer's colony that we used to do, we bring up a bunch of writing teams and they had this sort of retreat. I said, I think I'm going um, to quit. Wow. And they were very supportive of that. And I did it and I had no plan. I did not know what was next. Oh. And I completely walked away from theater. I completely mm-hmm. walked away. Wow. And Where'd you walk I wanted towards? <laughs> I walked towards the world. I actually did a lot of traveling. I mean, I went to Southeast Asia and Europe and Turkey and all these, like I went to South America and all these different places. And I was just traveling, traveling, traveling and just learning stuff. Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the things that is so important. And maybe it's a little bit of a cliche, but you have to go out to the world and learn something Absolutely. to be inspired, to be able to create. Um, so when I was doing that, I was, I was, working remotely so I'm really good at working remotely and I was working in real estate because I had just had like a side interest in real estate which came from my days living in Las Vegas in 2012 after the crash and real Mm -hmm. estate was really cheap and I was just so interested in this world so I was like okay I'm gonna learn about this Mm -hmm. just learn about something else and that what I actually learned from doing that and not thinking about theater and not really being passionate about it was the real practical side of business how does Mm -hmm. one start a business how does one raise money how does one budget? How does one deal with vendors and contractors and regulations? Um, all, things and, and that are, all things that are missing so much in so many theater people, Blair. Yes. I mean, and, I, and yes. I, 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 I'm always shocked at how little 
theater people know about the business, uh, not just the business of theater, but just business in general and acumen, you know, for, for economics and for things. And I'm always, and I guess, like you said, if all you do your whole life is theater from the time you're, you know, you're a teenager and you focused on theater, that's wonderful. But if you've never done anything else and all you've done is theater, that really puts you at a handicap on some, on some, some levels because you're not yes. equipped for the business side, you're not equipped for the world. I mean, I always say to people too, if you haven't traveled, you know, not everyone can travel, but if you haven't learned about other things other than theater, then what do you have to do theater about? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Really? There's nothing to write about. There's no place to, to choreograph or direct. You can't if you don't know anything other than theater. <laughs> the, the whole point is theater is reflecting, right? The, everything else is going on in the world. So you took this mini break and you went out there and you... You, you, you focused on um, a side career in real estate uh, and you traveled, both really important, great things to be able to do. And then what happened? How did you get back around to, to, to theater? So again, talking about going into things backwards, I finally decided in 2017 that I was going to move to New York. It had always been a dream in the back of my mind but again, Earth sign, very practical. I was like, I don't want to live with eight roommates, mm-hmm. you know, in Bushwick. Like, I want to be comfortable when I do it. I want to be able to make the best of it. So, you know, I've been working in real estate and was able to save enough money to make the move not crazy difficult. And I actually, I arrived in New York City and I told myself, you are not going to work in theater. You're not going to be paid too little to do too much. Mm-hmm. You're not going to work nights and weekends. You're not going to do any of that. And I, I decided that I was going to go to, you know, these employment agencies and tell them I had experience as an assistant. I could be anyone's executive assistant and hope that some finance person would pity me and, you know, maybe I'd do a temp job and they'd hire me on and I'd make six figures and I'd be happy and I'd live in New York <laughs> and I'd go see Broadway shows and everything would be amazing. Okay. Um, so I go to these agencies and they sort of like look at me sideways because I'm clearly not the traditional type of um, person who's an executive assistant and is doing it as a career. And they're like, okay, well, you have all these weird things on your resume, so it's hard for us to, to put you in front of anyone who we're thinking of, but we'll try. So they, it's like a couple of weeks go by, and I'm going to all these different agencies. And I go through this meeting with one of them, and they say the same thing. Like, you seem really great. Uh, you have a lot of practical skills, but you don't have the experience, the specific experience to be in uh, a financial agency or any of these big businesses. Mm-hmm. And, they, and the meeting's almost over, and they're going down my resume, And then they stop and say, actually, I want you to talk to somebody else. I go, okay. They say, because you have a degree in theater. And I'm like, yes. And they're like, okay, why do you do this if you have a degree in theater? And I'm like, that's a long story. Um, (laughs) So they're like, okay, well, just talk to this person. So they come back and they introduce me to somebody else in the agency. And they're like, I have a job I think you could do perfectly. It's for someone in the theater who is looking for an assistant. And I'm like, okay, well, that could be anybody. It could be a writer. It could sure. be a director. It could be somebody who's retired and just needs somebody to like help them out at home. All things that I'm perfectly willing to do. And then they go, and yeah, it's actually a Broadway theater owner. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and this is going through my mind as I, I literally am telling myself every time I walk into these offices, you will not work in theater. Mm-hmm. You're not going to work in theater. Don't do it. And they're like, yeah, they're looking for somebody to be their personal and executive assistant 
cool, check, I know how to do that. They're looking for somebody who's experienced with booking travel and managing households and, you know, dealing with the different household staff and all this. I'm like, check, mm-hmm. I know how to do that because, of course, I've traveled and I've mm-hmm. worked in real estate. Yeah. So, of course, all of these things are aligning and I'm like, no, 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 no. And they're like, well, let's just see. Let's submit. They submit. Of course, I get an interview. And then I do another interview. And then four more interviews later, I end up uh, as the personal and executive assistant to Jordan Roth working at Drew Jamson Theaters. Oh, wow. On Broadway. In New York City, living the dream that I had when I was like 13 and 14, right. which I was not at all going for. And that's that's what's, I don't know if it's luck. I don't know if it's, it's part of the process of how to we be, get maybe. But it, but it really was like, I had given up on that dream so long mm. ago. I probably gave up on that dream yeah. before I'd even gotten into college when I said, you know, I don't, I don't think I want to move to New York and do the whole thing. Mm. And then I got it. And I and I and I didn't want it. And then of course I did want it. I did want it more than sure, anything. Sure, sure. And I would I would go to work uh, every day, and just be so happy. Mm. You know, I, I I would literally get off of the subway at Forty Second Street, which is like the worst station in the world, and just smile every day. Like I could not be grumpy, and it would be snowy, and it would be windy, oh, wow. and I got yeah. to go to work. In a Broadway theater. I worked above a Broadway theater every day. Wow. Well, I mean, yes. I mean, it sounds like you, you your path eventually came back around, right, to what you had yes. started with. And that's just life. And you can't really, you can't really uh, fight that when that happens. But so one of the things that, that drew me to, to, to wanting to talk to you was that I noticed that, you know, from that, you know, obviously working with, with, with Jordan Roth, um, from there, moving forward, um, you find yourself now as a producer on a 12-time Tony Award-nominated play, Slave Play by Jeremy O'Harris. I mean, yes. I'm sure you didn't know that when you started the project. But I mean, now, since you've started the project, tell us a little bit about the, your experience working on Slave Play. I mean, I know there's a, there's a gap between what you were just talking about and, and Slave Play, but the interest of time, what, how did, you know, how did that come about? Your involvement with slave slave play and and what was that experience like? Well, it's totally related because you know the work that I did at Drew Jamson was the last piece of the puzzle that I needed to sort of understand mm. what we do. You know, that was what it's like working with a theater owner and in a Broadway theater. What do those budgets look like? Why are things the way they are? How do shows even get a theater? And so I took that knowledge when I left that job. And I was sitting around and I said, now what do I do? Mm. I still hadn't ever called myself a producer, right? Mm-hmm. And I said, well, you know what? There's, no, there's nothing else that you need to do. <laughs> You've been a stage manager. You know everything about on the stage. And you know about yeah. a theater owner. And you know about developing new shows from good speed. And you know, you, know, you, you know what it's like to be a performer. I said, so I guess I should try producing. And I... I think back to my days at Goodspeed and I'm like, what were the shows that I really liked? I want to try producing one of those. So I call three artists who I had worked with and ask them all, hey, would you mind if I option your show so that I can produce it? I called thinking they would all say no, say you have no experience. Of course, they all, all three of them said yes. And then, and then about a week or two later, and that's not even an exaggeration, it was a week or two later, uh, Greg Noble, who's the lead producer on Slave Play, called me and asked me if I wanted to be a producer on the show. And the funny thing is, you want to know where I met Greg? At Goodspeed, when I was ah. sitting in the office. And he had just come off of winning uh, Tony for Gentleman's Guide. And Greg is a year younger than me. So when he showed up, I 
kid you not, I think there were like, you know, flames on the side of my face. I was like, who are you to be younger than me, like 23 years old, winning a Tony and a producer, and I'm like somebody's assistant, right? But I turned that energy into positive energy and ended up working with him many, many times over the years. Even when I wasn't in theater, I would still like I would still talk to him about projects or he would ask me to be involved in projects in other ways as an investor. So when he called two weeks after I decided I was a big boy producer, I just said yes. I just said, Yep, yeah, I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna do it. And he had he had invited me to see the show at New York Theater Workshop the winter before. Mm. I think that was in like the December before we opened. And I watched it and I was just like I don't know how to feel about this. Mm. And then for six months, I kept thinking about it. And that's how, that's why when he called, I knew I had to do it. Because wow. I often forget about shows the next day. Mm-hmm. I was going to so ask you, me. I was going to ask yeah. you, that was another question. Uh, how, what kind, how do you pick the kind of shows that you want to be involved with? And you've just answered that, which is if they stay in your mind, right, is one of the, one of the criteria, I guess. I mean, I'm not somebody who really commissions things or is like, I know sure. this great piece of intellectual property let's find some writers i really go see something or hear something and i say i want to help this show be bigger other people need to hear it or see it and slay slay was that for me so we're greg invites me and this is like three months before we're supposed to open on broadway because that's like as soon as they could get a theater and as soon as they got the yes and of course i know all about that process so i'm like let's do it Mm -hmm. and and you know for producing on broadway it's a lot of money so it was about raising money um, being in the room as we're talking about the marketing for Broadway and what changes we need to make uh, as we go to this bigger space and this bigger theater and how to make the show more accessible, um, uh, what we're going to do different about our process. And one of the kind of crazy things about working on Slave Play is that was a year ago, over a year, uh, year ago when we opened, and kind of all the conversations that are happening in the theater now, mm. we were having on that show because, well, what is the show about? It's, it's, it's about the relationship basically between black and white people in this country. Mm. And so we were having those conversations and we had to, to produce the show. I mean, what kind of people would we be if we're producing it and we're not taking our, our own you know, advice? And, and so we did like an anti-racist uh, training, our first day of rehearsal with mm. the directors and designers and the producers and like something that's never happened on Broadway before ever. Like everybody on a, on a show to be in a room going over our stories and our experiences and our knowledge of, sure. of race relations. Um, and then we, we did things like the blackout night, which was crazy. Like I actually got to attend and just the idea that we would set aside a night specifically to invite black people into a Broadway theater, which had also never happened before. Yeah. Uh, mm was amazing it was an everything about that process was amazing and to be in that room around the table having those conversations and we really got into it from Mm -hmm. like what the artwork looks like to what pictures we put out into the press because there was a lot of backlash that came from the off-broadway production just because you know things are taken out of context pictures can be taken out of context a title like slave play can be taken out of context so we spent hours (laughs) hours in meetings discussing like what exactly are we saying and how are we going to say it you know i know Nobody, nobody thinks about that who goes to see a show or very few people, go, audience members who go to see a show, don't think about the hours and hours and hours of time spent on thinking about all these things that you're talking about. You know, how is this going to come across? What is the title? Does the title work? Does it does it throw people in a different direction? You know, uh, titles are important. Some shows close or, or because people don't get <laughs> yeah. the title. And, uh, and and then I remember being in New York when, when Slave Play um, 
was was you know hitting its stride and um i was there with my boyfriend and we were waiting in line for to get into another show that we had tickets for and we didn't have time to go see slave play but everyone was talking it was like buzzing it was buzzing and i had i had a, a student of mine who's who happens to be a student of, of color and she happened to you know we we told her to come come to the show we had an extra ticket with us and we're waiting in line and she had just seen slave play the night before she couldn't stop talking to me the entire time in the line. And it felt great because she, she had just graduated from my program at George Mason that I, that I teach at. And I was just like, I'm so excited that this 21-year-old, extremely talented young lady is so excited about theater and so excited about this play she just saw. And then it, it, it stuck in my head. Right, so I've always yeah. wanted to see it, and then of course the the pandemic happened and everything, and I, you know. But so I mean, the experience. What was the experience of of getting to the once the play was on stage uh, and up? Did you feel a shift? Did you feel people sort of gravitating towards it, or or how did you how did that come about? I mean, we were both lucky from a commercial sense. And then very also unlucky in a lot of ways mm-hmm. by the fact that this show ended up being a sort of like cultural phenomenon for a second. Yes. And theater was being talked about in places that theater was not normally talked about. Um, even in a way that was different from something like Hamilton, which mm-hmm. was, oh, there's this awesome musical. And people are like generally aware of what a musical is and they get it and there's music and they can listen to it, right? Yeah. So if you... If you are into it, you go and listen to it and you go, yeah, this is great. The problem with something, uh, the problem with a play mm-hmm. <laughs> is that the only way to experience it is to see it. To go see it. So we have a show called Slave Play and mm-hmm. it's like the perfect fodder for Twitter and social media, uh, for the, you know, the uh, page sixes of the world and all of right. these things where we're like, fighting all these fires and just saying, we just, we, we just, we're just these theater people who wanted to put on a show, right? And we wanted to make it accessible and we and, and then Rihanna shows up and that's like a whole thing and right. then other celebrities are showing up and Jake Gyllenhaal's on our producing team mm. and suddenly this little play with eight actors yeah. is something else like it, it explodes and you know we are so grateful because a play a Broadway show is being talked about regularly in the news and on Entertainment Weekly and in all these magazines and then we have a, a somebody like Jeremy who becomes a celebrity in his own right and is doing so much of the work, the which is just you know you don't yeah. get that from every writer. Some writers yeah. like you, you, you wouldn't, I don't even know what half of the writers of Broadway plays look like because you never see them, right? right, they, right hide. Sure. They're they're busy writing at home and <laughs> they're not out in public. Maybe I don't know. It depends. You're right. It is hard to get, especially as a producer. It must be frustrating. You don't want to get the the writer out there if they want to be out there um, to to talk. Well, about they also. Time. They, some of them say everything they need to say in their play, right? Right. Luckily, yeah. Jeremy had a lot more to say, sure. so well, it's <laughs> that a big it topic, easy. and and also it just seemed to be the at the right time too. The timing is so important, and this play yeah. comes out, and we're at a moment of reckoning in the country, uh, in the United States, with with once again with race, which you know is a is a topic that has been with us our entire existence, uh, and will continue to be. But um, you know, I mean, so the, it was of the moment, and you know, and it was something that definitely, obviously struck a chord you know and i think that that, and and, you know i try to think you know and it's not that i don't i'm sure there are examples but you don't think of a broadway play about race a play not a musical being really that big of a phenomenon as slave play was you know recently um i can think of old examples but not recently so that's a big deal 
Well, and also Broadway plays about race tend to the story tends to not be about race. Right. Right. Even if it's, it's, it's a great play and the topic happens to be race. Right. This was a play that was about race, but the story about the play was also about race. And that was that's what was so powerful about what we were doing as producers and why the producing team had to be young and it had to be diverse mm-hmm. and why we had to protect our performers and we had to protect our playwright and we had to protect this show and why we spent so much time and energy. We didn't just throw it out there. No. There are other shows, there, there were other shows on Broadway at the same time that are about race. And the conversations that happens in those rooms are completely different than the ones that we're having. But the ones that we were having have to happen when you are putting uh, any characters of color, but you know, black characters in a situation where their blackness is front and center and being attacked and being challenged, you're going to do that and you're not protecting your actors and you're not protecting your audience, then you really shouldn't be doing it. And, sure. you know, I, I don't need to call anybody out by name, but it's, it's not just one time. It's happened plenty of times in history. So, right. Well, but I feel it's a bit of a shift because, if I'll be honest, a couple of years prior to this play coming out, for example, you could look in the back of Playbill and 90% of the shows there would be musicals. Uh, of the half of those revivals, um, the other half or one one fourth of it, maybe uh, what they call jukebox musicals or musicals based right. on music already pre-existing. You know, the days for w- of, of when you would go to Broadway and there'd be 30 different plays playing, whether that was in the 30s or the 40s, you know, uh, 1930s or 40s, those days had felt long gone to me. And a day, a day where you would see a play be as much of a success as a musical and it not be a comedy and it not necessarily be something, you know, light and frothy and, you know, do you know what I mean? It, it felt, yes. it feels like a change. It feels like something different. And I don't say Slave Play is the only thing to only play to do that, but I feel like there's a shift on Broadway. Well, especially because we had The Inheritance playing at the same time, yes. which again was a show that, that was about something. It was challenging our notion of what a play can be and should be and what it should be about and who it should focus on. Mm-hmm. And so it was kind of, I mean, the year that was unfortunately lost that season, plays were so strong and we see it in in the you know protracted Tony Awards mm-hmm. that there were three musicals even even honored with anything but the plays there were there were plays that were just amazing that weren't didn't even get awards and, right so there, and that coming. shows you how strong it was yeah it's coming there's a shift i think and i have a feeling that after this extended pause that we're all on now due to to the pandemic the covid19 pandemic that we are going to see a further shift into yes. um um topics of substance um you know and trust me i love musical theater and i think musical theater can do a lot of things well, if, if put together well, but um, plays are important. And, 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 and I feel like we had lost a bit of that, especially at Broadway, because it's so expensive, right? That's what people talk about, right. how expensive well, it is to produce on Broadway. Is it? It's super expensive to produce, you know, and, it, and with Slave Play, Jeremy asked us to make 10,000 tickets, $39, you know, no mm-hmm. ifs, ands, or buts, just available for $39. And we did it. Mm-hmm. And we did it at, like a, at a loss to us because mm-hmm. obviously with a huge hit play, you could just say, okay, we're just going to adjust the ticket prices. Everything's over $100. But we're trying to make things more accessible. And I think when Broadway comes back, you're right. Not only will it be a shift to plays and things that are about, about something, it'll be a complete shift in the way we produce. It actually has to be. Right. Um, Absolutely. Because we're not going to be able to come back and do things the way they were financially. Right. Socially, we 
we're not going to have huge tourist audiences when we first come back. So we yeah. had to start speaking to people where they are. We had to start budgeting. Wow. Budgets had to be reasonable. Like shows can't be closed because they're only making $800,000 a year or a million right? dollars. Right. I feel like the model, like, the model was broken. So it's in a yeah. way nice not broken, but inaccessible, completely inaccessible to the average person. I remember when I was reading something about someone in the, and I keep harping back to like the 1930s and 40s, where someone would go to see, you know, four or five Broadway plays in a week. And I thought to myself, how can you afford that? And I thought, oh wait, back then they probably could. Because it yeah. wasn't, you know, go seeing to play. You're going to see a play with a cast of five, six people with one set. It's not, you know, there's no helicopters flying. There's no, um, you know, sets changing before your eyes in some magical, really expensive way. And again, oh well, yeah, things- that helicopter ruins <laughs> musical theater budgets forever, right? Right. So I mean, and, and, and you listen. There's nothing. I love musical theater, and I love big spectacle. I'm a big fan of big spectacle. But big spectacle is expensive, and you're going to pay a lot of money to see something with a ton of costumes and a ton of sets and beautiful. A lot of that stuff is almost made by hand, right? In, in Broadway, yeah. in the way it is in theater. So um, there needs to be room for these smaller pieces that are are well, maybe led by intellect. You know, and and we'll also Broadway does not necessarily need to be the center of the theatrical universe the Correct. way it has been for so many years. Right. Um, what Broadway should be, and like I said, I love musicals. I love them, love them, love them, and I go see all of them. Mm-hmm. But I also understand that a Broadway musical, a big Broadway musical like The Lion King or Wicked or Mamma Mia when there's a revival, that's not for me. And I don't need it to be from me. And that's okay because mm-hmm. we don't have, we should not be saying to people who come from out of town, oh, how dare you want to see this show that's super popular and everybody's been talking about for 15 years, right? <laughs> right like sure. we should be saying, yes, see that, yeah. see that and then see this and then keep being able to see things because you didn't spend $200 on it. You spent $50 on it. And now you have $50 because you just discovered this art form to go see another show. Like I, I was on the team that produced the Sweeney Todd off-Broadway. Yes. Immersive one. Totally different, right? Kind of musical. And that's like, that's another thing you can go see. And the Sleep No Mores. And I've, you know, gone and seen these crazy things in bars in Brooklyn and Mm -hmm. uh, in an abandoned office building. And that is going to be the ecosystem of New York theater, not just Broadway. Broadway is going to be a category of what we call our industry because we have regional theaters and we have colleges and universities and we have community theaters and we have things online now and it Correct. doesn't have to all be about the big, big show, so which true. I want and I always want and I want to see people fly and I want to see helicopters mm-hmm. land on stage, but I want people to know that there's more. Well, and also we have to remember that those shows for a lot of young people children and kids who are starting out their their hopefully their passion for theater as an audience and also potential potentially as a theater practitioner a lot of that starts with their parents taking them to new york to see a show right mm-hmm. and so that's or a, a yeah or a tour that comes through town of a musical because they're kids maybe or of a children's play and those things are just as important as the intellectual you know, smaller crafted play because that's how you build your audience and that's how you build your practitioners because a lot of us listening to this started our love of theater by sitting in the balcony of watching a chorus line or cats or or whatever it was. You know, so I I hear you. I hear what you're saying. It takes all different types and it shouldn't be. And it's important. Yes. Because one of the problems we have with shows like A Slave Play or things that are challenging is that people have no 
a basic understanding of what the theater is. Mm-hmm. So to them, the idea that it's a show and it's called Slave Play, but it's not literally a play about slaves. And then it's, but even though there's a part of it that is, but it actually twists in being about something else. Like we can talk about that because we've been doing this for 20, 30, 40, you know, however many years you've been in the industry. Sure. An idea like that is something that we have developed because we did movement work and we talked about absurdist theater and we talked about, you know, mm-hmm. all Stanislavski. And so when we go see something, we can take it all in. Right. But if you're asking somebody who's never been to the theater before to watch something like a slave play or just to hear about it, it's they're going to be like, what? There's a play about what? You yeah. know, it's, it's confusing. It's a lot. It's a lot to ask someone who doesn't have that that, that um, history of doing that. So, you know, we're almost out of time, which is crazy, Blair, because we've just been chatting away and I've totally, you know, lost track of time because it's been so interesting talking to you and everything about everything that you do. But um, before we wrap up, I wanted to just uh, be able to talk to you a bit about if you have any, because we're on this quarantine, we're on this pause, what do you do during this time period? Do you have anything um, coming up or any, did you work on any online projects as a producer or do you have live ones that potentially could be coming up at the end of 2021 or as we get through uh, this pandemic, which, you know, knock on wood, I don't have a crystal ball, but it looks like maybe by, by the summer or after the summer fall of 2021, we, we might be able to start heading back. What do you have ideas on about that or, 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 or something oh, yes. in development? So I'm, I'm all of the above. Mm, so good. one thing that happened, I had, uh, three shows that were in development in March mm. and they were all at different phases. One was, you know, they, they just started a fresh rewrite. Another one, they were probably looking for a reading or a workshop. And then the third, it's like, yeah, we could totally do a production if we find the right place. Mm. Suddenly <laughs> they're all in the same exact spot, right? They've right. all caught up to each other yeah. because the writers who were working on a draft have finished it. And the other writers who needed a sure. workshop and the reading, and then the other writers were like, actually we went back and made all these changes based on what's happened. So I, I, I have those three shows. I took on two more shows <laughs> in the, in the time period. Um, and so I'm, I'm keeping my eyes open for what the next opportunity is for all of them whether it be something virtual, which isn't my favorite, um, not when it's Zoom. We'll talk about what I do like about virtual. But uh, I'm just keeping an eye on, like, what are the opportunities for these shows, especially going into 2021? Is it outside? Am I going to be performing in the park in mm. New York? Yeah. Uh, and circus tents? Like, what are we doing? Uh, so I'm really excited to explore that and explore in other countries as well, like in the UK. And uh, I actually live in Mexico City now. Oh, so wonderful. I'm looking at, like, what can be done done down here Uh, so I still have like the real the I have a big musical I have uh, two smaller shows I have one three-person actor musician musical that I'm working on right now Mm -hmm. called Lizard Boy and we Mm want to do like a drive-in tour of America and do like a festivals next year the theater festivals so let me tell you don't don't discount um uh, Spanish-speaking audiences. I grew up in in Brazil, and I saw many a musical in Portuguese. American yeah. musical in. I saw a chorus line, "Sweet Charity," "Minha Doce Caridade," in Portuguese. <laughs> and let me tell you, as a child, that was super important. Uh, so they can be done in Mexico City yeah. or anywhere. <laughs> but um, that's great. I mean, listen, Blair, we've got to go because we're almost out of time. But you have so much going on, and that's so exciting. And I can hear from everything that you've just listed that that you're going to keep going, and we're we're going to be looking out for you on American Theater artists online we're going to be looking for your name when we go to the next uh show whether it be in broadway regionally or in mexico city or anywhere around the world or the country we're going to be looking for your name under that list of producers and now i think we understand a little bit better what that entails 
Excellent. Well, I, I hope I hope in 2021 we'll be back. You know, right now uh, it's just the, the virtual stuff, and it's all important. We're learning and we're adjusting, and we have to keep adjusting and learning. And the theater will grow. Absolutely. And Blair, if people want to follow you, are you one of those people that that doesn't mind having people follow you on social media, or do you have a website or, or Instagram or? Facebook? I do not mind at all. I'm probably the most accessible person on the internet. Wonderful. Uh, my website is blairrussell.net. B-L-A-I-R-R-U-S-S-E-L-L.net. On there, you will see uh, my website for my projects, Blair Russell Productions, Mm. which has all the shows that I'm working on. You'll also see a link to my company, Resounding, and we do live immersive audio experiences. Like We just did a show with Norm Lewis and Rob McClure, and it's all these like live radio plays. And... And you'll see like all the fun stuff I like to do in my my just personal life, and that connects you to my Instagram, ba Russell Four, uh, and Facebook, and you can find me anywhere. And set up a meeting with me. There's a there's a link on my website, and anybody can call me and chat about projects. So Blair, that's great. You have so much energy, and I think you might be getting some calls or some uh, people <laughs> setting you up for meetings. You never know. And I as, can't wait. as you've already exp- you've already um, shown and demonstrated through this interview. It can lead anywhere. You never know. And it could lead to a project. So being so open is really wonderful. Thank you so much, Blair, for being on American Theatre Artists Online. It's been wonderful talking to you. Have a great rest of your weekend. Thank you. Take care.